So I want to continue and in this attempt to uh, fill out, elaborate a little bit what I mostly mean on this retreat um, when I talk about image, fantasy, mythos, uh, give more, hope, hopefully a fuller sense of <clears throat> the direction and the inclination, the attitude, the orientation uh, involved in the use of that word, those words, and also what's included in the scope of the meaning of those words for the most part. <clears throat> so just to recap briefly, we said that an image in the sense that we're using that word uh, doesn't have to be visual at all. It may be or may not be. It could come through any sense in a imaginal sense door, so to speak, or not so much tied to any sense at all, but still operating potently, powerfully, deeply in the psyche um, as a symbol, as an, as, a, as, a, as an image with a lot of resonance. Uh, there may or may not be dialogue involved, uh, and that can happen in different forms. The ways that we communicate or are communicated with the ways that we interact with an image, the ways that we know an image, are uh, there's a wide range of possibility there. And it may not be verbal. Other ways of interacting may be more appropriate. And we also said that what's, in the sense that we're using what's absolutely characteristic of an image is, is the sense of soulfulness uh, that comes with it, uh, that it bears. Um, with that it's not so much about understanding about taking it concretely, literally <clears throat> it's more we're talking more about, if you like poetic images uh, that are not reducible so much, they have a certain mystery ambiguity to them, an inexhaustibility to them we also differentiate a little bit between so-called narrative images and what I'm calling iconic or poetic images uh, which are not so temporal. Uh, we pointed out that images don't necessarily need to come in meditation, they can come outside. And they may be kind of more ethereal in their um, substance or more solid seeming in their substance. All this is, is fine. We probably, uh, or often, rather, let's say, m many images are in fact one-offs, but um, they may be connected to other images. So it's the same sort of constellation appearing in slightly different forms. Some are just one-offs, but generally speaking, images need re repeating, or rather often they, they need repeating, to um, slowly absorb and uh, with, with small movements, cumulative movements, um, allow a different sensibility and an opening of the conceiving, really, of uh, self, of life, of world, and, and of practice. And then we um, talked a little bit about images sometimes ha uh, having a kind of archetypal dimension to them, uh, and seeming to have that whole richness, and other times not. And uh, sometimes when they don't, it's still very beautiful, very healing, very powerful and important. But on this retreat, um, as I said, the inclination, we are, 
what I'm trying to set up is a bit more interest, a bit more leaning towards the more iconic, poetic, archetypal images that um, are pregnant uh, with soulfulness or, or, or in our relationship to them, uh, we create and allow the soulfulness, this soul-making. I'm going to talk a lot more about what I mean by soulfulness and soul-making. So just to continue then, this word, um, archetype, I, I will use it, of course, now and then, but in a way, um, I prefer really the meaning of archetypal uh, as an adjective, an archetypal image. But even that word um, really... Um, I mean, I may not use it that much, we'll see, but really what it sums up is, and what's meant by that, is, is a pointing to and inclining towards a sense, a view, an attitude to images that has to do with a way of, of seeing them, a way of conceiving of them, and a way of valuing of them. Um, so it's less a category. And even when I say, and, uh, uh, it's rather than a universal category, it's something very individual, an archetypal image, <clears throat> in that sense, and it's just an adjective there, um, is individual. It's not the warrior archetype, it's this warrior that I see, that I'm interacting with in this image, uh, or this wanderer, rather than the wanderer, or whatever it is. <clears throat> but really what's um, summed up in that word archetypal, if I do end up using it a lot on this retreat, is really this, um, or rather this, this collection of, of, of qualities and aspects and dimensions and values so that <clears throat> it is individual and it is irreducible. We cannot reduce uh, this archetype to something else, uh, some smaller unit or component. And it is not in itself a small unit and component that we can then separate from other ones. And they're not so much functioning like that. Sometimes, especially in some streams of the Dharma, people really like those kind of explanations of things that chop everything up into simple units and components can be really helpful. So there's the aggregates and there's the process of dependent origination in time and these units and moments happening. And it's all fine, and, but it's limited to an extent. And uh, as I will actually point out, it do, is not conducive to soulfulness. <clears throat> that kind of uh, way of understanding things, trying to analyze things that way. But in this uh, collection, if you like, of, 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 of aspects or qualities um, that we're really pointing to when, when, when we talk about the kind of images that we're interested in on this retreat is this irreducibility and this inability to be fully explained, to be fully interpreted Actually, that word explain is explain, uh, to, to make plain, to make flat, to flatten out. We're not interested in flattening out these images, uh, it, rather the opposite. Um, they are, we feel them to be, when they're alive, these kinds of images, complex. They are complex. They're there's something elusive about them, E-L-U-S-I-V-E, in the sense um, 
I, I cannot quite fully grasp them or fathom them, fathom them and their meaning fully. They're in a sense unfathomable, just like a person is in many ways uh, complex, elusive, unfathomable, or an animal. And just like a person or animal, these images are alive. This is the kind of view of images, the relationship with images that we're wanting to encourage or that one senses in certain images. Um, unfathomability, <clears throat> uh, elusiveness, complexity, aliveness, they're alive in some way and they have a, some kind of autonomy. They have a certain kind of autonomy. They're not just part of me that I can control. Not that simple. So they have some certain kind of autonomy. And they have, we could say, we sense that they're real in some way. But their kind of reality is not the same as uh, the, the, the solidity of this chair or whatever. It's real in some kind of different way, but not unreal. So we're being a little more uh, sophisticated and more nuanced in our whole conception of reality. And hopefully we'll come back to this more and more. Um, as we go through the retreat. But in some way we sense or we entertain the idea, uh, the, the vision, that these uh, images that we're calling archetypal as a shorthand, they have some kind of reality. In some way they are real. And we sense that they are deeply important. And even if we can't quite put our finger on why or how exactly they're deeply important, they feel deeply important. So in a way, we could say they involve, the image itself involves uh, our entertaining uh, a view about the image. And, and this is for some people uh, a bit of a stretch, but uh, it involves our entertaining a view, and included in that view is a view of the self and of the cosmos. In other words, wrapped up in this sense of the image is, is the entertaining of a conceptual view, which could be quite vague, it probably is quite vague, um, regarding the self and regarding the cosmos. And it's, if you like, a richer, more multidimensional view than the, the view of, say, modern um, scientific reductionism, for, for example, or what they call physicalism, which is a very flat, one-dimensional view. It's a view that just tries to um, really explain the movement and behavior of matter in space and time dependent on uh, physicality, other matter in space and time and the way it interacts. It's kind of one-dimensional. Or maybe we add another dimension uh, and view things. Uh, we tend to view things in the modern uh, world view or cosmological view as uh, uh, only personal or only social. So this image or my being, my life is viewed in purely humanistic terms or purely social terms or purely as a result of the past or the result of uh, matter. Such all this is quite what I'm calling flat, uh, say one dimensional. And rather than that, um, or rather including that, but opening up further with this sense of images is what I want to call a vertical dimension. There is the sensing 
or we could say the giving, both, uh, the giving to the image, a sense of a vertical dimension. I'm going to come back to this hopefully later on. So what do I mean, just for now, a little bit? I mean there is a sense, or I'm entertaining the view, that this image, or my person, my personhood, or my life, uh, the thread, the threads of my life, the soul events of my life, we're entertaining the view of vertical dimension, which means something like that this image, my person, my life and its soul events are, are mirroring or echoing archetypal figures, if you like, or we could even say divine figures. They are in some way, let's say, rooted in uh, archetypal figures or rooted in the divine, so that there's a kind of um, a vertical spectrum. And we can talk about different places on that vertical spectrum, the more... Uh, archetypal or divine, the more so-called human and material. We'll elaborate on this later, but that can be a sense within or with an image. One has that sense of something shining through or, or having its origins or roots in, in something else, some other dimensionality, if you like. so that it's echoing, mirroring, or rooted, or originating in, in that. And it's as if the image, and the experience of the image, or my being, my personhood, my life unfolding, and its trajectories and events, and all that in my personality is sort of existing, if you like, on different levels at once that are mirroring each other, echoing each other. Now, saying all that, and as I said, I'm aware that something like that might, for some people, feel like really, really a stretch, maybe. Uh, I'm going to come back to this, but really to emphasize, we are, in saying that, I am acknowledging, and I'm recognizing, and for me this is important, that if we speak of gods, I realize I am creating these gods. Now, that's not usually how we think about gods, is it? Uh, I am creating these gods. The psyche is creating these gods. Now, this is interesting philosophically because most people will be either in the view either something is real, and by real they mean objectively existing, independent of the mind, independent of the psyche, if you like, independent of the way of looking. Either it's real that way, in that objective, independent way, or we create them. And yet, is there another way of understanding that understanding of emptiness really, really helps in other philosophical um, openings that are possible? But primarily, it's really the understanding of emptiness, as I would understand it, in its depths. To really understand, it's not this either-or that we can... Uh, so to speak, acknowledge and recognize that this is fabrication. We are creating these gods, and it, it doesn't mean they are unreal. In the Jewish mystical tradition, in a <clears throat> uh, famous and very revered text, a huge text called the Zohar, somewhere in there it says, God, remember this is a ancient monotheistic uh, religion, really, um, but it says somewhere in there in the mystical text, God is mystically dependent on humanity's liturgical praise and acts. 
God is mystically dependent on humanity's liturgical praise and acts. So somehow, humanity's praise, humanity's prayerfulness and reverence and devotion and also the action of humanity somehow creates God. Now, very easy, some people will hear that and reduce it to a metaphor. A bit like when some people talk about Brahma-Viharas, which sometimes is translated as divine abodes. Oh, that's what God means, that we create it that way by being uh, uh, good. It's only, it only refers to a kind of... Um, it's just another way of saying that's really, really good to be that way. Um, so when... Can I hear something like that? God is mystically dependent on humanity's liturgical praise and acts without reducing it to a metaphor and kind of disempowering it. There's a kind of razor's edge of view here between concretized belief and um, and dismissal. If I share something, actually... Um, uh, some years ago um, when I was thinking about several people had asked me repeatedly will will you write a book about emptiness and uh, I kept saying no and for some reason I began to somehow more seriously entertain the idea but I was (laughs) I knew it was going to be a huge huge amount of work huge amount of work and I had also felt in some ways that I had put a lot of that out in talks and I had moved on in terms of what I uh, was re- researching and exploring and excited about and wanted to share and express. <clears throat> and a friend uh, and I, uh, who's actually a Dharma teacher, and, and we were talking about this and, and we had been talking about imaginal practice. And, and, and he said in regard to the book and my unsure, and said, well, do the gods want it? Do the gods want it? And, and the answer was, I don't know. I, I don't know whether they want it. I don't, I don't have any sense. I felt very ambivalent. I didn't know. And, and somehow I, well, this could be a very long story. I'll cut it short. I began writing. I, be, I began working on it and uh, was absolutely right. It was, it was very difficult in, in a lot of ways, very challenging, not just because uh, of the size of the task, but because I had uh, so much else on in terms of work. And also, as I said, because for me, in a way, I felt like um, there were other things that I wanted to share and uh, explore and express and research. But in the writing of it, uh, and, and then feeling the, the, the challenges, the different challenges involved, and deciding actually to relate to those challenges as practice, but not through emptiness practice, through imaginal practice. And so feeling into the whole process of writing and that the challenges um, more imaginally and, and taking that to the cushion and working with imaginal practice in meditation. And somehow out of that, out of that, came a sense of images um, in relationship to the book, a whole range of images, um, very l- lovely, very moving. And... It's almost like the work and the attitude and the exploring and meditation created these gods. And then these gods fed back into um, supporting and encouraging and pushing, in, in, <laughs> in some cases, uh, the process of writing. So that what came first there? There was a kind of 
um, recognition that these gods that had a powerful effect on me and if you, if you, if you like guided and, and encouraged and supported and as cajoled and pushed and prodded uh, recognizing that yes and, and I create them So this has a, a mirror, as I said, in, in some traditions, and what, one is the Jewish mystical tradition, and in another stream of that tradition called the Lurianic Kabbalah after Isaac Luria, it's a sixteenth-century uh, mystic in in Palestine, and uh, he had uh, elaborated a system. Uh, it's not entirely his, but there. Um, metaphorically, in terms of uh, cosmology and a creation, it's not really a, um, a temporal scheme at all, but that the original um, vessels that were created to um, embody and contain and radiate the aspects of God, uh, of the divine, uh, were created, but were actually not able to withstand the intensity of the influx of divine light um, and so they shattered under the force of divine light coming uh, into them and they shattered into shards uh, that were then scattered in the universe or scattered in the universe and part of if you like the task of consciousness of humanity is to recognize these shards of um, of, that contain divinity, if you like, and so to speak, raise them up um, back to, uh, um, uh, to 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 a kind of divinity. But in doing that, create new vessels. So not reconstruct the original vessels, but actually create new vessels, new, um, if you like, containers or aspects or faces of the divine. So this is what humanity does. So humanity, through, human through our acts, our doing, more importantly even than that, through our perception and interpretation um, of self, other texts, um, tradition, world, through acts and perceptions and interpretations, humanity, we are actually creating new vessels, if you like, creating new faces of God or new gods, new archetypes, if you like, um, like that. So that uh, there's this recognition there that through action and through, again, everything hinging on perception, through perception, interpretation and ways of looking, that humanity is in some sense creating uh, the divine and the faces of the divine, or we could say the gods. So if you know a little bit about philosophy, that's, that's a different uh, conception than the, the, the more platonic idea of archetypes or ideas, where they tend to be quite fixed. Uh, there's no changing of them. And yet it's it's not a kind of postmodern nihilism. Just if we create things, everything's just meaningless and has no value whatsoever. So as I said, there's some kind of razor's edge here, uh, which if I can hold that line um, and balance there between this idea of either they're real or we create them, actually... Uh, What's a razor's edge, which is a very thin line, opens up huge, huge expanses.
is that I am not the same as my gods and my demons, my demons. They're not the same. Rather, they depend on each other. The self, I, my life, and my gods, my demons, these figures that come to me, they give life to each other. They shape each other. They're dependent on each other. We could then say the image is never separate from the way of looking at it. It's never separate from the mind state, from the reaction to the image, the relationship with it, the conceptual framework that's being entertained in relationship to it. Or in Dharma language, the image, this imaginal figure, this god or archetypal image, whatever I want to, this daemon, is always dependently arising with the way of looking, with the mind state, with the reaction, with the relationship, with the conceptual framework. Or to say that in yet another way, it's not yet an image in in the sense that I, I mean that word. It's not yet an image until the relationship with it comes alive in certain ways. So this character that I have in a dream or this um, image that comes to me in meditation is not yet an image in the way that I mean it until the relationship with it is alive in certain ways. And I may or may not be aware of having that kind of relationship with it. That's also really interesting. So for a lot of people moving in life and actually entertaining very, very vaguely um, uh, certain ideas and relationships to um, uh, something in life, a perception or a situation or their self or something, not quite aware of what their, uh, what the relationship with it is, what the conceptual framework really is, not aware that it's image. So, again, another way of saying this is that we're playing with conceptual frameworks. Um, and emphasis on the word playing, because this razor's edge um, is a very playful point of balance. It's not rigid and concretized. There is a lot of fluidity, flexibility, lightness, ease to enter in and out of different conceptual frameworks. I think I've said in several other talks in the past, this our word idea, I-D-E-A, comes from the Greek word eidos, E-I-D-O-S, um, which implies idea, but also implies um, what we look at things through, the way we see. So we look at things through. We look at this image, or I look at the situation in my life, or I look at my journey through life, or I look at myself or the self of another through the conceptual framework, through the eidos. And with enough um, flexibility, uh, or deep understanding of emptiness, or uh, philosophical skill, if you like, we can be free to play with different conceptual frameworks. And in this case, we're playing with a conceptual framework of, if you like, what if, what if we do not dismiss uh, this image as just the result of random neurological firing? So what if we don't dismiss the image? What if we don't literalize it? This, these are the, the 
the opening of the conceptual framework. It's rather than saying, let's not close it down by dismissing it, by literalizing it. So if I keep having this image of a solitary wanderer, it means, oh, you should go traveling. You should go maybe, maybe take a walking holiday. Go hiking in the mountains or something. Not necessarily literalizing it. Playing with the idea of not literalizing it, not dismissing it, not interpreting it rigidly or narrowly as a sign. It means this. It represents that. So we're playing with what happens when I don't dismiss it, when I don't literalize it, when I don't interpret it rigidly as a sign. And then also playing with the idea, the conceptual um, framework, if you like, is what if I entertain the idea that the image is primary? In other words, this image is not necessarily reflecting or expressing my history. Maybe I see um, a sad child, the image of a sad child, or a child alone. And I don't immediately assume, oh, it must be referring to my childhood in some aspect uh, that I either already know or that I didn't realize that there was some sadness there or some loneliness there. So it, it might be, but what if I don't just jump into that in view, which would be the history is primary, the memory is primary, the material reality is primary, and the image is reflecting that or reflecting this psychological wound or something. What if I play with the idea, turn that round, as we were talking yesterday evening, and say, play with the idea that the image is primary and that it's archetypal in all the ways that I unfolded the, what, what, what's contained in that sort of shorthand word. That it's primary, that it's archetypal. I play with trusting these images. Trusting them. Trusting their intention and their nature, if you like. And part of that trusting is um, including in my conceptual framework um, a different or a more open idea in relationship to causality and what's called uh, telos. I'll explain what that means. So both when I'm viewing an image, but also and, and with more and more imaginal practice, also relates to how I'm viewing my life. So regarding images or regarding my life, myself, we can see very easily, everyone would agree, the past gives rise to the present. The past causes the present. That's one um, idea about causality and very important. We have to see that. Of course, the present is dependent on the past. A Dharma practitioner needs to be uh, on the journey of exploring dependent arising and fabrication, which I've talked about a lot in, in other places and uh, written about and stuff. So not just that the past causes the present, but the present causes the present. This way of looking, this relationship, this reaction in the present shapes the present, fabricates the present. I absolutely need to understand that. Not just the past, but the present also creates the present. And then thirdly, there's this idea, as a Greek word, telos, T-E-L-O-S, um, aim or goal or end, if you like, um, that some, in some strange way, the, the future, we could say, causes the present. That there's something 
that moves towards some uh, some let's use the word fulfillment, but some end, some uh, goal, some fruition. So that the past causes the present, yes, of course, obvious. The present causes the present, we really need to understand that. And we're entertaining the idea that in some way, um, images may have something to do, imaginal figures may have something to do with, um, or may contain within them some kind of telos, they're um, showing us something or pulling us towards or inviting us towards, goading us sometimes towards uh, something of uh, what we are growing towards, if you like, what we are moving towards, our trajectory. And in a way, they're a little bit, Corbett talks about the angel out ahead. James Hillman talks about grappling with the angels of one's destiny. And how in the in the um, the psychotherapeutic or psychoanalytic process, uh, we could say also just in, in terms of Dharma practice, you know, certain amount of practice and certain amount of suffering and neurosis is is dealt with, gone, seen through, learnt how to uh, dissolve, etc. And then maybe there's a whole other level of this grappling with the angels of one's destiny. It's not something I necessarily just want to um, dissolve or get rid of or regard that's dukkha, so I'll neutralize it and come to some kind of more simple, equanimous place. So that's involved in our playing, uh, in the conceptual framework that we're playing with, this idea or this uh, at least admitting or sensing the possibility that there's something um, telistic here, if that's the word, something of telos, something of where we are drawn and pulled to. And as I mentioned earlier, there's otherness, this sense or regard uh, of, of an imaginal figure as somehow other. This otherness is, is a necessary facet of the image. So remember that um, what I described of the liquid being poured in to my head and there's a sense I couldn't see who was doing it or sense who who it was but it was somehow other and that was that was significant what, what gave it power so just as with emotions and our emotional life and again this is something really important if you haven't seen this already in your practice or explored this I would really recommend um, we see with emotions how much, just how much the conception of um, emotions, emotional life, emotional goals or directions, how much that whole conceptual framework around emotions affects um, the unfolding of emotions and what even comes up emotionally. So just as, as that is the case with our emotional life, uh, which we can explore and find out for ourselves whether that's true with emotions. It takes a certain amount of courage, willingness, open-mindedness. Just as the case with emotions, the same is true with images. The conceptual framework will affect how much images come up, what presents itself as image, and how an image that arises unfolds. So the view that we have, the conceptual framework, um, we could say it stimulates, it inspires, it condones um, certain images, it accommodates and supports certain images, or not. 
always, always, always the conceptual framework is an immensely significant factor. Okay, so a few more things. When we, when we still talking about what's included in this, um, uh, when we say image, um, it may be that an image is an actual myth. In other words, it's, it's not just something uh, arising just for us, but it may be, for example, the, the myth of Christ. And that whole, for me, I, I wasn't raised in that tradition, so there's a, a real depth and freshness and, and beauty for me and, and moves me immensely. Um, I never felt uh, oppressed by it or bored by it because I maybe because I didn't grow up with it, I don't know. But, um, but that's, a, if you like, a myth. All that with the crucifixion and the resurrection and the betrayal and the, um, the mercy, the beauty of all that. So it could be that that myth or aspects of that myth are what we're meditating on. Or from another tradition, the, the myth of Horus, the falcon god, son of Isis in, in Egyptian mythology. I, I find a very, very beautiful myth there, very complex, rich. Or from the um, <coughs> classical Greek tradition, or perhaps more, I don't know, Eros, the myth of Eros and Psyche, the love affair of Eros and Psyche. Or the myth of Persephone, who was... Uh, raped by Hades, the god of the underworld, and dragged down to the underworld. And then her mother, Demeter, uh, was tormentedly searching for her, searching, searching, going through all kinds of suffering. It's a long story, but in, in, in the end, Persephone lives half or some portion of the year in the underworld as queen of the underworld and wife of Hades and some other portion of the year um, uh, in, in this world. So really the point is uh, an image for us may be an actual myth. It may be something that we really feel when we hear that story and feel into it. We really feel a lot of resonance and depth and it moves us and it's alive for us. Actually, in those in those four images, I, four myths I just mentioned—Christ, Horus, uh, Eros, and Psyche—and and, and the myth of Persephone. Um, one thing that's striking to me is is how we can have a sense of understanding those myths. I understand sort of the allegory there, or what's being communicated to a certain extent. Um, and yet they always retain, and maybe this is um, characteristic, as I said, of images and myths that survive and, and survive with potency for the psyche, is they have this mixture of, I can understand, and, and also in different ways. There's not just a, 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 a mono understanding that's possible there. They're, they're interpretable in lots of different ways, applicable to our lives in lots of different ways. But at the same time that there can be a sense of understanding or understandings, there's, they always retain a kind of unfathomability. There's always this mystery. I cannot quite get to the bottom of everything that this myth or this image is pregnant with. So that's one thing to notice about those, those ones. The other thing um, is the mixture within that myth of um, redemption, if you like, 
and suffering in the Christ myth, in the Horus myth, if, if you know it, beautiful, in the myth of Eros and Psyche, and in the myth of Persephone, they're not so simple in terms of the relationship with suffering and freedom from suffering. Now, I'm, I'm just saying that now. It's, that's because that's so central in Buddha Dharma, this question of suffering and ending suffering. It's something I'm going to come back to. But often myths are not quite so uh, simple uh, in 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 regard to suffering. That's actually a very complex question. Historically, uh, some of you will know some people come down on one side uh, of that uh, of that question. Never let go of the suffering. The suffering is always given a place. And some people, for example, James Hillman, and some people will come down um, on the other side that through skillful imaginal work, suffering is completely transcended. Uh, for example, someone like Corbin, Henri Corbin. So I want to come back to that. It's a very important question. But an image for us may be an actual myth. That's completely fine. It may be also that a memory from uh, from our life can become an image for us. So, again, what do I mean by image? It's not just, oh, I remember that because I can remember that that's what happened. Uh, I remember uh, that event in my memory, and therefore it's an image because it's a visual image in my mind. No, I mean an image in the full sense that I'm talking about tonight. This um, imbued with all that meaningfulness and depth and resonance and timelessness and everything that, we, that we've alluded to. So any memory... Sometimes, for example, certain, um, uh, I don't know, it could be, for example, an, er an erotic encounter, uh, something in lovemaking and just some moment in that uh, becomes or comes, stays with us uh, in a kind of timeless way. It's almost like it's transported or removed from the flow of time and exists for us, uh, pregnant and beautiful and deep and mysterious as, as, as a kind of timeless image. That memory of something that happened in my life uh, get, becomes uh, infused with soul or, or is infused with soul, soulfulness, soul-making, and becomes image for us. Now, of course, um, memory is picked up and imbued with energy and significance uh, when we're in the throes or the vortex of papancha, this kind of crazy ego proliferation mind that, that human beings, most human beings know very well. There's also characteristic there is often, or what can be, is a memory is picked up. There's a lot of energy and significance attached to this memory, but there's a difference there. This is really important. In Papancha, everything is so damn literal. It just means what we think it means, and it's shrunken and small and concretized and literal. Literal. There's no soulfulness in it. There's no depth and resonance and beauty. Uh, the ego is very identified, taken very literally. Um, so it's all wrapped up in ego identity. It's very, um, if you like, lacking in other dimensionality, in this depth, etc., and resonances, timelessness, cosmology. 
And of course, in Papancha, the uh, there's contraction. Generally speaking, there's not an opening out of the psyche or the energy body. The energy body is contracted. The psyche is actually contracted. It's very different than when memory becomes image. Uh, when a memory becomes papancha, quite a different experience. So it could be a myth, could be a memory. It's also important to point out that images can um, uh, appear in stages or, or develop in stages. So this is this is actually quite common. Maybe over one, let's say, meditation session, you get a little bit, and then and then a bit more is added, and then a bit more, or over se- several sessions, or sometimes over really, really long periods of time. I mean, some, sometimes even decades, amazingly. Um, so there's, there's, it doesn't necessarily all come at once. There, there can be a sort of stage-like process sometimes there. Images can also, um, so to speak, cross-pollinate. Um, in other words, we might, um, for example... Uh, read uh, something or hear someone else's image or um, see something uh, or someone or um, read a myth or hear a myth and the image contained in what we see, read or hear um, plants a seed, if you like, or becomes a seed or maybe um, an and that, and that becomes uh, or joins an image that we already had or gives rise, as, as a seed gives rise to an image for us, becomes an image for us, or joins another image that we already had and makes a kind of combination. There's, the, these things are fertile, and there's a possibility of cross-pollination. That's not wrong at all. So an image can also be be a person I know, uh, as I've alluded to, it can be people we know or people we, we just meet. So this could be someone alive or someone dead. It could be someone famous uh, or not. Uh, could be a teacher, as I said. Uh, again, we might know them or, or um, just know about them, so to speak. Um, where there is love and beauty and meaningfulness in a relationship, whether we uh, know this person directly or we know about them or we just met them, where there is love and beauty and meaningfulness and a sense of depth and resonance, then that relationship is then infused with us uh, with um, image, fantasy, mythos. So they, that, that, that's just another way of saying the same thing or recognizing if this person, uh, there's a lot of love and there's a sense of real beauty and meaningfulness here for me in depth, then that's another way of saying, look, uh, at that time, an image is um, alive and working in my perception of, of this person. And there's no problem with that. The relationship is infused with that and it's beautiful and necessary. And as I said, sometimes it can be some, someone we just meet or just see on a film or something. One student was telling me they were, they were actually quite down and, uh, for, for a short period. And then they heard um, a woman uh, speak. She was an activist. And they heard her give a, a, a lecture. 
I think it was even on, on the internet, on YouTube or something, I can't remember. Um, and the, the depression lifted immediately. Why? Partly because this activist was talking, the woman was talking, and uh, her presence and her delivery and something coming through, she was seen as, uh, as, as image, and, and it triggered uh, the soulfulness and the aliveness of the soulfulness. It triggered a fantasy in, in the person listening. And where there is aliveness and soulfulness uh, like that, um, that kind of depression lifts. It, uh, we, we come alive again. So again, from all of that, it, it kind of implies not, not to assume that <clears throat> images exist sort of um, somehow uh, a priori, sort of locked up somewhere. Uh, it's, it's as if the psyche is creative and opportunistic and will just take anything from our life, um, from our experience, and make it archetypal if it can, if it, if it, uh, if it needs to. Right, as opposed to images being stored somewhere and then arising, it's there's a there's a process that's um, imbuing perception also here. That's uh, more when I tend to use the word fantasy as well. It's imbuing perception and the sense of life. And other others can for us become. Um, if I use another word, theophany. T h e o P-H-A-N-Y, theophany. It means something like um, an appearance of the divine. So other beings, again, they may be teachers, they may be lovers, they may be friends, people we know or not, but through imagined work, through sensing in and actually going with uh, skillful imaginal work. Sometimes other human beings for us can become, um, so to speak, <clears throat> don't like the word because it has too much New Age connotations, but channels or faces of the divine. Henri Corbin speaks about the angelic function of beings, the angelic function of beings. So somehow um, there's so much richness and depth and resonance and beauty and meaningfulness in this relationship. Something is ignited there, sparked there in the soul, in the psyche, and through, the, through also oftentimes the eros. I'm going to come back to this whole thing. And they become for us somehow divine, somehow a, a, a face, a showing of the divine, somehow, if we like, angelic. So again, this ties in with the, what I was talking about earlier, alluding to the vertical dimension. It's as if we perceive that person materially and obviously human and a result of their past. And yet at the same time, without discounting that, we uh, sense too, we have the impression too of other planes, so to speak, other, let's put it more accurately, levels of perception. Everything, as I said, hinges on perception, where we are able to perceive other levels of their being that are more, uh, if you like, divinely rooted, or reflecting, echoing, mirroring the divines coming through this being, their expression, their their body, their their uh, speech, perhaps, their love. We know that's a perception, and we know. 
as Dharma practitioners, we should know all perception is empty, empty and fabricated. So there's something, again, sophist- more sophisticated philosophically here. It's a perception, it's empty, it's fabricated, and yet it has a lot of power. We're not saying that means it's not real at all. So this relates very much to uh, Tantra practice as it's practiced in, in the Tibetan tradition. Practicing seeing um, this place or that person or one's own person as, um, as, as a Buddha, as a, a deity, if you like. And when actually pra- the emphasis on practice, one's practicing seeing in a certain way, actually that's the way that Buddhas see in that tradition. One practices seeing um, this or that or all things as divine. I'm going to come back to this and the, the interface with Tantra, the connections, the differences, etc. Perhaps hopefully later and all this business about theophany and levels of perception, vertical dimension. I hope to fill that out a little more later. I'm just mentioning it now. But partly what, what I want to say for now is that through all this, um, life comes more and more. Life itself, experience itself one's own narrative, one's, uh, this moment of experience comes to be seen as, as image. What is it to see life as image? To see it through that lens, to sense it through that lens, a different sensibility. Now this could be uh, one's personal life. One sees one's personal life, as I said, one's narrative, one's personality, what one is called to express, the events of one's life. One sees that all as image. Something that, that could seem very mundane. For example, I remember um, uh, studying one day, uh, reading different texts, and um, then going to practice. This is some years ago, going to practice and looking for images, but then realizing, oh, no, that uh, the image that's actually alive right now is actually this day or the portion of the day spent at my desk with these tests with these texts trying to um, make connections trying to open up horizons and and paradigms trying to absorb and learn from um, other others and beautiful minds and hearts that I respect and being connected with a tradition that way that itself was image, um, was uh, somehow sensed as image and infused with some kind of sense of divinity. The whole thing, me, the activity of studying, the tradition, the connection, the trying to open up ideas, etc., to push horizons, the whole room that I was in, my, my room, all that was imbued with this sense of theophany, etc. The whole thing was, it itself was image. So my life and all of that. So it can happen that way. Something very mundane gets imbued with a different sense of connecting, if you like, uh, w- with other levels. It could be one's personal life, as I said. could be something more, um, more universal or cosmological. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this later on. As I said, looking around and seeing in tantric practice, seeing this space right now as a Buddha realm. 
seeing it as a mandala, seeing it as the uh, a divine palace, feeling it, sensing it that way, it has another dimensionality to it. There are all kinds of possibilities there. We'll come back to this. So the point is, eventually, life can be seen as Im- image more and more, or in and out of that perspective, and that could be just in relation to one's personal life, or more in relation to um, life in the in the sense of universal life around one and, and this world, or a mixture of the two. But again, in that second one, um, in the sense of what happens to my my view and my sense of of this world around me right now, this moment around me right now in this hall. It's not necessary that an image in that respect is coming as a visual object, but it's how this here is seen. The way of looking at it renders it um, uh, or, or sees pregnant within it already mythos, fantasy, sees it, feels it, senses it as image with everything that that means. Not some other thing appearing spontaneously out of the psyche or deliberately, but this moment now seen as image, felt as image. And this is important in all kinds of ways. One of them is just a recognition, there's an insight here. We need to recognize, and with practice, um, it's, it's possible. Image, fantasy, mythos is actually in sense data. It's woven into perception a lot of the time. Maybe not always, but in the senses that I'm using it, a lot of the time, it's woven into the sense data. It's not so much added later on. Now, when we talk about, I'm going to fill this out later on, I'll just mention it now in another talk, I'll fill it out, but I'll, I'll just put it there as a see. When we talk about <clears throat> mindfulness, but especially we talk about things like bare attention, just feeling the breeze on the cheek, just the raisin taste in the mouth, etc., um, the, the intention there for that kind of practice of bare attention, of, sort of what's often uh, communicated as simple mindfulness, um, the intention there is, is a sort of shaving off um, down to something that's supposedly bare, um, but there's a shaving off of, of these other levels of image, fantasy, mythos. So there is, within that kind of stance of practice, there is um, the, the um, yeah, shaving off is a good way of putting it, of, of the imaginal levels, the fantasy, the mythos that tends to, that can imbue sense data. So coming, trying to, or the idea is, can I be with just the sense data itself in its bare form? So that's a very, very valid practice to to a certain extent. Um, But it's a different gear than what often happens in life, especially when there's love or when we're, as I said, have a sense of meaningfulness, of depth, of beauty, um, or certain kinds of soul beauty, let's say. It's a different gear to be in bare attention. And then other practices, like, for example, the range of emptiness practices or when there's um, uh, samatha, is uh, samadhi is, is deepening, or other Dharma practices, um, we could say they um, uh, they fabricate even less than than so-called bare attention, than mindfulness practice. So that's a different gear as well. It's like not only is it not fabricating this um, soulful aspect of image, fantasy, mythos. It's not even fabricating other aspects of experience. 
So it's fabricating even less those practices, emptiness practice, samadhi practice, metta practice, as they get going and deepen, they fabricate even less than so-called bare attention practices. And there's a whole spectrum of less and less fabrication there. But if we're not practicing bare attention, if we're not in uh, practicing emptiness and samadhi, or any times we're not practicing bare attention or emptiness or samadhi, etc., there will tend to be something wrapped up <clears throat> in our perceiving. And a lot of that time it is what I'm calling image fantasy mythos. So there's something about recognizing that that constitutes um, a really important ins- insight. And I recognize it, oh, this is something I need to acknowledge and understand and feel into and see its effects. I recognize it, that's an insight, and then I can also empower it at times and empower that kind of um, imbuing or involvement or relationship with perception so that there is this soul-making, this soulfulness, and I'm going to fill out what that means. For the sake of soulfulness, for the sake of soul-making, we can actually empower that understanding and that involvement with perception. And empowering things in that way or allowing that to, uh, to have its power, that partly hinges on our playing with and entertaining views and conceptual frameworks, on lightly entertaining views and conceptual frameworks regarding uh, images and what we perceive, as I, as I try to explain a little bit. So again, <clears throat> this... this um, willingness to play and entertain certain conceptual frameworks, views, stretch things, open them out, don't just immediately dismiss, etc., as, as I explained. That gives power to something which enables the soulfulness to go deeper and the soul-making to, to happen in a very beautiful and fertile way. And it hinges partly on this playing with the conceptual frameworks. It's really important, saying that over and over. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.